Today we commemorate the baptism of Jesus. The Christian calendar invites us to dwell upon the baptism of Jesus every year. And, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in doing so. You see, the baptism of Jesus was, in one sense, unique. To, to my knowledge, no other baptism in the history of the church has been accompanied by a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit or by the Father speaking audibly from heaven. And, and so in that sense, the baptism of Jesus is unique. But in another sense, the baptism of Jesus serves as a paradigm or a prototype for every other baptism. We ought to learn from the baptism of Jesus the meaning of our own baptisms. And that is why I think the baptism of Jesus is worth commemorating annually. As we open to Matthew chapter 3, we are introduced to John the baptizer. And I say baptizer simply for the sake of clarity. John baptized people. He was a baptizer. He was not a Baptist as we have come to understand it today. And John's job as a prophet was to foster a spirit of national repentance so as to prepare the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah. And the sign of this national repentance was baptism. Baptism was the ritual way in which to become a member of this repentant nation. That's still true today, by the way. Many people today imagine the world of the Old Testament to be very different from the world of the New Testament. If we're orthodox in our beliefs, we, we at least believe that it's the same God in both the Old and the New Testaments. But perhaps we draw other distinctions. Perhaps we think the religion of the Old Testament was corporate in nature. It was centered on an entire nation. Whereas the religion of the New Testament is more individualistic, centered on having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we think the religion of the Old Testament was a physical religion, having to do with circumcision and food laws and blood sacrifices. Whereas the New Testament is more spiritual, God is less concerned with material things now and more concerned with our souls, however we define that. But the ministry of John the baptizer does not permit us to make these types of distinctions. There is a great deal of continuity between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. There's no discernible break. John prepares the way for Jesus. John anoints Jesus. Both men preach the same kingdom message. Both men see themselves continuing and fulfilling a project that began in the Old Testament. The, the mission of God was already ancient at this time. Not only that, but, but the priority of water baptism demonstrates that God is no less concerned with material things today. He still cares about what we do with our bodies. He still cares about what happens to our bodies. And, and even in the new covenant, he still uses material things like water and bread and wine to accomplish spiritual things. But the broader point is, is simply this, that Jesus has come to continue and to fulfill an ancient project. Let's read beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
That's about 80 miles. Jesus walks 80 miles to be baptized by John. But John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So Jesus comes to John for baptism, and John initially reject, uh, uh, objects, you ought to be baptizing me. But Jesus insists, saying that his baptism is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean for righteousness to be fulfilled? And why does John immediately consent upon hearing this? Obviously, Jesus has no need to be cleansed of anything. Jesus is sinless. So why is this baptism necessary? This past summer, we studied the book of Nehemiah. And in chapter 1, Nehemiah is, is just devastated over the broken down condition of the people of God. And so he begins to pray and to confess sin. However, Nehemiah doesn't just stop at confessing his own personal sins. He confesses the sins of the people of Israel. And he confesses the sins of his father's house. Now, in Nehemiah's case, unlike Jesus, he did have personal sins to confess. But it's worth noting that whether or not Nehemiah had sinned personally, he takes responsibility for the sins of Israel. He takes responsibility for the sins of his father's house. He repents on behalf of others. He repents on behalf of all God's people. And, and, and I think we see something similar in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is identifying with the people of God. He's even identifying with their sins. Jesus is receiving the sign of, of national repentance. Jesus is taking responsibility for the broken down condition of the people of God. Th this is such an important point. This baptism marks the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus' ministry involves a lot of rebuking people. He did a lot of loving. He was humble and meek and gentle, but he also stood very firm on a whole host of things. But before he set out to bring the people of God to a place of repentance, Jesus made a point to identify himself with their broken down condition, with their sins. And so when, when Jesus rebukes someone, he is doing so as one who has taken responsibility for the broken down condition of the people of God. His words are the words of a humble brother and a faithful friend. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of of a friend. He's a friend. When Jesus rebukes us, he rebukes us as one of us. Jesus doesn't keep his distance from sinful people. He doesn't tell people to shape up and then leave them to it. He is not a sinner, but he does draw near to sinners. He does identify with sinners. He does even suffer for sinners. And so more than, more than anyone else in your life, Jesus has earned a hearing. 
He is a humble brother and a faithful friend. He identified himself with you and your worst flaws before you even knew him or cared about him. And so knowing this, we we should listen when he speaks. Even when, and, and especially when, what he says to us stings. Now, let's go back to, to one of my questions from earlier. When, when Jesus tells John that his baptism is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, why does John immediately consent? You see, it makes sense that John would initially oppose the idea of baptizing Jesus. Just, just consider what he has been preaching in the desert. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. He's going to be far more powerful than me. I have water, but he's going to have wind and fire too. He's going to lay an axe to the root of the trees. Prepare yourselves because he's coming in judgment. That's what John has been saying in the desert. But instead, Jesus shows up. And by all all appearances, he's just a dude probably exhausted from an 80-mile journey, and he's standing before John in humility. He's joining in on this national repentance. This is not what John expected. And yet, all Jesus has to say is that his baptism is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And having heard that, John immediately consents. He immediately baptizes him. Why? When Jesus says that his baptism is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, he's talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. Each and every time the Gospel of Matthew uses this word fulfill, it's in reference to prophecy. Here's a sampling. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That's just the first two chapters of Matthew. Jesus has come to fulfill prophecy. Jesus is coming to John with the conscious, deliberate intent to fulfill biblical prophecy concerning himself. He knows the Bible, and so as the Messiah, he knows the shape that his life and ministry ought to take. Jesus says, don't worry, John. I've come to fulfill all of it. It may not look how you have imagined, but it's all going to happen. All of it, trust me. I have come to continue and to fulfill the same ancient project as you. And with that, Jesus humbly identified himself with his people. He receives the same baptism as the most sinful sinner in all of Judea. He took responsibility for the broken down condition of the people of God. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in the newness of life. And then just a few verses later, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members 
to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what Jesus is doing in this baptism. He is presenting himself to God as an instrument for righteousness, as one who would fulfill all righteousness. And when we are baptized, we are doing the same thing. We are presenting ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. We are saying, God, may your righteous will be fulfilled in me. What else can we say about this? Let's look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now remember, the baptism of Jesus teaches us the meaning of our own baptisms. He identified with us in his baptism, and he invites us to identify with him in our baptisms. When we are baptized, we we don't see the heavens open. But we can And we should be sure of the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. When we are baptized, we don't hear the Father speak audibly from heaven. But we can and we should be sure of the fact that He loves us and approves of us. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you are a baptized person, these truths are always accessible to you. If you are a baptized person, you don't have to wonder whether you are loved by the Father. He already told you so. And he tells you again and again each and every Sunday in the bread and the wine. He tells you in his word. He tells you in the love of his people. He tells you as often as you remember that you are a baptized person. You are beloved. He is well pleased with you. And so if you ever doubt the status of your own redemption, look no further than your own baptism. You remember your baptism and you say to yourself, I am a baptized person. I am a member of this repentant nation. I am beloved God is well pleased with me. Does this mean that we ought to place our trust or our confidence in baptism or the Lord's Supper? No. No, it does not. Our confidence is not in baptism or the Lord's Supper. Our confidence is in the God who washes us with water and who feeds us bread and wine. The God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. The God who speaks to us and communicates himself to us, and reveals himself to us, even now, even today. With you, he is well pleased. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a loving and approving Father. May your righteous will be fulfilled in us. Jesus, thank you for identifying with us, for 
for taking responsibility for our broken down condition. And Holy Spirit, grant to each of us the assurance of divine love and approval so that we can be instruments of righteousness in this neighborhood and in this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.